Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. One of the hardest questions to grapple with about 9-11 also sounds like the simplest. How did we miss this? In part three of our 9-11 series today, we're talking about the FBI and the CIA in the years leading up to the attacks. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We wanted to give a quick shout out before we get started to anyone interested in joining our book launch team. We are getting geared up for the promotion of our book. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversation comes out in February 2019, and we're building our book launch team. So that's people who will be um, promoting the book on their own social media channels, doing reviews, and more importantly, um, getting all kinds of cool bonuses and interactions about the book. So I'm really excited about the book launch team. If you are interested in joining the team, you can shoot me an email, sarah at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Thank you so much, guys. Dylan, will you please set a clock for us because we are going to begin today's episode with a lightning round. Lightning round. 
I want to start with Omarosa's book and just reiterate the view I expressed on Twitter this weekend. I am not here for the Omarosa hating. I do not mm-hmm. take what she says in this book as gospel. I just think we all have always known exactly what Omarosa is about. It is the same thing the president is about. Mm-hmm. And for the mm-hmm. two of them to be playing these games should be exactly what we all expect. Let's just calm down about it. Well, I have a question. Do I have some sort of, do I get grandfathered in to the Omarosa bashing if I've been Omarosa bashing since the first season of The Apprentice? Do I get some sort of grandfather in if I just maintain the same level when she was a reality star because I don't feel like this is any different? Do I get a pass? It's not any different, right? It's not. Just roll your eyes like if it was a reality show. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, not really, because I do think she confirmed... This is not a reality show. It's the White House. And she confirmed that it's being run like one. But other than that... I think the most surprising thing about her tenure in the White House is that we didn't hear more about her while she was mm-hmm. in the White House. And I think, what, what was she going to do? Say no to the job? I mean, look, it's not like I want to be her friend. It's not like I think she is a model of human behavior. I'm not going to read the book. Because no. we all know what this is. And I don't like for... Look, here's what really bothers me. She is a symptom, not the disease. Yeah. All of yep. these people on their high horses about her behavior right now helped put her there. She's interesting to watch. So is he. That's why he got elected. Let's just Oof. accept where we are instead of trying to pin it on this one woman. Yeah, I totally agree. Let's not make her the central issue. She is exposing things in a more clear light, I will say, in a more stark contrast that we already knew existed. So, and we already knew this about her. So I don't know why anybody's really surprised about any of it. Now, if that being said, should Omarosa actually produce tapes of Donald Trump using the N-word, then I will need to have another conversation. And no one should be surprised if she does, because Mm -hmm. that is who he is. The fact that his retort to her book is calling her a lowlife. Ugh. Right before we started recording, I saw tweets from him saying, I know it's not presidential for me to even talk about a lowlife like Omarosa. Then don't! Then don't. And also, I'm sorry, again, I don't think he would be talking about a white person that way. I don't. That's where this president's head is. Sorry. Okay, we're over our lightning round for sure at this point. That's a good transition, unfortunately, because race has been dominating the news. So, you know, a handful of white supremacists came out to Washington, D.C. on Sunday. And I'm so so thankful that this was so tiny and Mm -hmm. that no one was hurt. I was just thinking, like, this is how I I have to accept that there are white supremacists, but this is about where I like them. Like, just a handful being drowned out by a big old ton of counter-protesters. This is like, you know, and I think that's why with the anniversary of Charlottesville, like, that's why it was so scary is because this is what we were used to, right? We're used to, like, a little smattering and then like a massive ton of prote- counter protesters. And that's where I was comfortable. Like I, you had deserve your right to free speech, but we had deserved to drown you out. And that's why that event was so scary. Now, you know, I don't think this represents the dying of the white supremacy movement. I think this represents the fact that they've gotten smarter about how and when they protest. But just the same. And I also think the media gave way too much attention to this one dude and his protest. But I'm glad to see all the awesome counter-protesters and that the narrative became, oh, this was kind of lame. Let's talk about all the awesome thing all the counter-protesters had to say. So there is that. 
it's just hard to know how to deal with this because mm-hmm. I don't want to be in the mindset of let's go back to normal when white right. supremacy is just under the surface of things always and we're not really talking about it and we're acting like we've made all this progress and things are okay. So that's not the right direction. It's also not the right direction to make somebody like the organizer of this a star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really hate that I know his name. Today, I'm just thankful that no one was hurt, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think it's, you know, I just read that article from a while back about how they're the alt-right and white supremacists are using, like, basically depression message boards to target people to recruit, which is so disturbing. And I was, you know, I think we were all thinking about race this weekend because of the anniversary. I was listening to Mitch Landrew on Oprah Super Soul Conversation and, and thinking about symbols and how we deal with race in this country. And I don't think anybody, even with the smattering of white supremacists at this, you know, the tiny number, thinks that we've dealt with race in this country. I mean, the, the, I think I just saw a poll where it was like, you know, 40, 55, 60% of people think that this administration has made race relations worse. Like, I don't think that's the case, but I do think the reactions in the, at Charlottesville in the past year, even if the president's reaction was abominable. I think the 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 group itself realized, well, we can't be quite out as we want to be and adjusted accordingly. That's not to say they're wrong. I mean, that's not to say that they're gone. And that's and I don't think anybody thinks that we've just really cleaned up race in this country. But I am happy that they feel intimidated enough not to show up in massive numbers. I'm happy about that. I'm going to celebrate that as a win. Last lightning round element that we want to talk about is sort of the president tweeting about the Mueller investigation and the Intense pressure that he is under in that investigation. Before we talk about his tweets, which I just would rather not talk about ever, I have something to say about my friends at MSNBC. I listen to MSNBC a lot in the car. I find it the most tolerable of the networks, even though it also is intolerable. The constant discussion about the Mueller investigation is so silly, I don't even know where to begin. And parading on an endless sea of former prosecutor saying that Mueller, it's just time, his patience should expire, he should just subpoena the president, is the most counterproductive thing I've ever seen in my life. And I wish everybody would stop. Yeah, I don't understand the end game with that. Actually, I do understand the end game. Ratings. It's all They know that that fuels people in the same way some of what Fox News does fuel people. And it's a ratings gangbuster. And that's why they keep doing it. Because they don't learn. That's why. No one learns. The number of considerations on Robert Mueller's mind about how he handles an interview with the president is just not something that a former prosecutor can opine on. It's mm-hmm. it's not. This is a different thing in a different time. So just ease up, everybody. He's doing his work. Let the man work. All right. That was done. That was bad. That wasn't too bad. We, we lightened. Well... We have a couple of other things to talk about before we do our gratitude moment and then get into our 9-11 series. And one of them is, I think, related to the 9-11 series. The Taliban is still fighting in Afghanistan for control of Afghanistan. And Mm. last week, over 200 officers and soldiers from Afghan government forces died as they were fighting Taliban insurgents on four different fronts throughout the country. Again, I return to the thought that We just want Afghanistan to be stable, and it's just never been. And I'm not sure how it gets to some form of stability, especially as our appetite for involvement there comes and goes. I keep thinking about the nightly nuance you did on Somalia and that amazing quote from the Defense Department about, 
you know, Somalia is not Afghanistan, obviously, but about the sort of maintaining versus building. What's that amazing quote you read? So he talked about that this is a U.S. military perspective on what happened in Somalia and specifically at the Battle of Mogadishu. And he writes, American military power had established the conditions for peace in the midst of a famine and civil war. But unlike later in Bosnia, the factions were not exhausted from the fighting and were not yet willing to stop killing each other and anyone caught in the middle. There was no peace to keep. The American soldier had, as always, done his best under difficult circumstances to perform a complex and often confusing mission. But the best soldiers in the world can only lay the foundation for peace. They cannot create peace itself. Oh, it's so good. I keep thinking about that quote. And I think that's so true in Afghanistan and honestly has been for so, so long. Like, I don't know if when would you even categorize the last period of peace in that country? I don't even know what you would point to. I don't either. And there are so many reasons for that. So many complicated reasons. But I think it is an example of how the United States has tried to help and maybe hasn't. Yeah. And maybe there isn't a way for us to help. Yeah. I'm so sorry for the lives lost there. I'm so sorry mm-hmm. for the people who are just trying to raise a family and have a normal life and continue to be caught in the midst of power struggles and the people who are fighting for their country and trying to form this stable government. And we'll keep watching it as it develops. We also wanted to talk a little bit about what happened in the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport on Friday night. Richard Russell took off in a stolen plane. He flew around for about an hour with military jets chasing him and crashed the 76-seater Horizon airplane in a wooded island. Now, he worked for the airport, so he had clearance to get on the plane. It has a lot of people rethinking the security apparatuses and procedures for staff at airports as well. It's bananas that this happened. It's just it's so bananas that he was able to move this plane out by himself, get it in the air. Why he did this. There were reports that he was kind of doing tricks in the air, but also no one's really sure how he knew how to fly. They thought maybe he had like watched some videos online. So his family seems bewildered by what's happened. They've lost this young man's life. I mean, he was killed in the crash. I saw early on Saturday morning on Twitter a a post that NORAD had scrambled planes. And I thought, what is going on? And, you know, we're deep in the midst of all of this research about 9-11. I had also previously seen a very short piece about how the Trump administration is considering scaling back TSA resources at smaller airports. And an analyst was saying, it is inconceivable that we're even talking about this. This is so dangerous. I can't even believe that we're discussing it. And then this happens. I think it's all a reminder that commercial airlines... Maybe we've gotten a little bit comfortable because we've had some space from 9-11, but this continues to be so serious and so dangerous, even when, as is believed here, it has nothing to do with terrorism. You know, this young man took off in a plane and he ended up dying because flying is flying is a big deal. Flying is scary. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're just going to start sharing feedback as we can throughout the week because trying to wait till Friday (laughs) Never works out. And then we always have to do like entire episodes on it. But Patrick emailed us after our conversation about the elections last Friday and said, 
It seemed like you guys kind of brushed off um, the progressive candidates, particularly those supported by the Justice Democrats. I know this was not your intention, but it's just how it came off. I just wanted you to let you know how important the victories that happened were. Tlaib won in Michigan, making her possibly the first Muslim to be elected to Congress. She also came up from fifth place to win. Thompson in Kansas closed a 12-point lead his opponents had above him. And Schoolcraft in Missouri won by 30 points. Out of the 12 candidates backed by Justice Democrats, 6-1, with one election still undecided. Out of the 24 candidates backed by our revolution, 11-1, with four elections still undecided. I think this is incredible, considering only two years ago the platform they were running was looked on as a fantasy of some crazy old men. I just hate to see these victories for the party be swept under the rug. And I wrote back to Patrick and I said, you're right. I was really talking about what I was trying to brush off was the idea that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie could come in and endorse candidates and they would automatically win. I like I think that sort of celebrity approach to the progressive and in and, and writing about the progressive left, which then I did made the mistake and did as if the, as if they are only represented by Bernie and her is unfair and overrated and overcovered in the media. And I think, but I do agree with Patrick, like the grassroots organizing by groups like Justice Democrats and Our Revolution is unbelievable and is, a, I think, a really great um, empowering part of the progressive left. And I don't want to lump the sort of the two together because I think they're different and I think that they're doing different things. And I, and I think he's right. I think the sort of grassroots organizing by those organizations has been impactful in several races and is a really great thing. Before we transition to talking about 9-11, I want to make sure that we do our gratitude moment. I am so grateful for this lovely piece I read entitled Democratic Candidates Embrace Aloha on Eve of Primary. This is out of Hawaii. It. it was a just a delightful story. And really more than being about any particular candidate, I liked that the spirit was we're celebrating the fact that we had a hotly contested primary over some very serious issues, including that false alarm in Hawaii. Remember when everyone thought that a missile was coming into the island? So there were serious issues. It was a real contest of ideas and personality and lots of things, but it did not get ugly. And there was an atmosphere of party unity, which I don't care so much about. I'm not a Democrat, but I, I appreciate and embrace anything where people are realizing we don't have to tear each other apart mm. in our elections. And there's no reason to do that. We can have real contests and at the end of the day say congratulations to the person who's chosen to lead and get behind that person or not without ever making it nasty and personal. So thank you, Hawaii, for that example. Today, I am grateful for our tort system. I spoke last week on the Nightly Nuance about my passionate defense of the McDonald's coffee lady who deserved every cent of that money. And then this week, we had a major settlement with regards to Monsanto um, in favor of several hundred million dollars in punitive damages against them um, coming from a groundskeeper who used Roundup and got cancer. And, it, you know, this has bubbled up a lot of my conversations with people in my life who don't usually talk about the news. I think it's really um, hit people hard. We talked about it extensively on Instagram Live, so you can go hear that here but or go hear that on our Instagram page. But I just thought, like, I just this is what the tort system is supposed to do. It's supposed to be a jury of your peers, not the powerful, not the rich. Not corporations pulling the levers, even though that's easy to do in our tort system. I'm not saying it's infallible, but the tort system is a jury of your peers hearing what happened to you and deciding how justice should be served. And I believe justice was served in this case. I hope the punitive damages aren't reduced upon appeal. I'm sure they will be. But um, I'm just really, it gives me a lot of faith. I love our tort system. Um, I think it's one of the best aspects of our legal system. And I'm glad to see it work here. 
Next up, we are going to talk about the FBI and the CIA and in America, really, in the pre-9-11 world. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So we are going to pick up where we left off at part two 
which is with the USS Cole bombing. On October 12, 2000, a full-fledged al-Qaeda operation was carried out off the coast of Yemen. Bin Laden directly supervised this attack. He chose the target and location, selected the suicide operatives, and provided the money for it. The operatives piloted a small boat laden with explosives alongside the USS Cole, a huge U.S. Navy destroyer. They made friendly gestures to the crew and then detonated the bomb once they got close enough. The bomb ripped a hole in the side of the ship. 17 crew members were killed and at least 40 were wounded. Bin Laden hoped for American military retaliation, but it never came and he got very, very frustrated. So to understand what was going on in America at this time and specifically with the FBI and CIA, we thought a little history lesson was in order. And we'll start with the FBI, which was created in 1908 by Teddy Roosevelt's attorney general. It's so interesting to think about before that, before 1908, We had no mechanism to enforce federal criminal law, and there wasn't a lot of federal criminal law. The states were just coming together. American cities were being built. Before the FBI, the attorney general had to borrow Secret Service agents to deal with issues like anarchy and corruption. As cities grew, so did organized crime and civil rights violations. There is an entire um, rabbit hole that you can go down in terms of studying this about enslavement laws that were being passed at the time and um, specifically white enslavement laws. So we'll put some links in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about that. But that's really how the FBI starts to grow. In the 1930s, their intelligence role picked up because President Franklin Roosevelt directed J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI, to investigate all forms of subversion within the country. And at that time, subversion looked like Nazis, the Japanese, and suspected communists in the eyes of or the FBI. Or whoever J. Edgar Hoover just didn't like. That's right. And, <laughs> and as you probably know, J. Edgar Hoover was very power-hungry and expanded the FBI's intelligence and specifically domestic intelligence activities way too far. He spied on people like Martin Luther King Jr., whom he wanted to discredit, and many other political figures, and used unauthorized wiretaps and surveillance. And all of that came out in the Church and Pike Committees post-Watergate. This investigation happens and the public becomes aware of what J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were doing, specifically as it related to collecting intelligence on American citizens. So confidence in the FBI just plummets as a result of these Watergate investigations. And future FBI leadership took this very seriously Coming into the late 1980s, as the FBI starts investigating terrorism, there was a real debate within the FBI about how terrorism could be broadly interpreted in the same way subversion was and taken too far. And they worried about violating principles of separation in church and state in investigations because terror is so often connected to a faith group. The investigations following Watergate were badly needed, but The Bureau took a beating in that process, and that made it extremely cautious for years into the future. In 1986, Congress authorized the FBI to investigate terrorist attacks against Americans that occur outside the United States. And a few years later, some FBI officials became part of the Counterterrorist Center, which was a distinctly CIA-led agency in which the FBI and other agencies could participate. So I'm imagining lots of turf wars beginning at this point in which the CIA felt like everything happening out of the United States was their turf. And then all of a sudden the FBI can investigate terrorist attacks like the USS Cole bombing. 
So right before 9-11, the FBI was organized into field offices, fifty about 56 of them, and the special agent in charge of each field office set the office's priorities. The offices operated independently from each other. And the director at the time, Louis Free, who had been appointed by Clinton, believed strongly in the importance of field offices. He dramatically cut headquarters staff and put power and influence in the special agents out in the field. Free understood I think at this point that terrorism posed a huge threat and advocated for the FBI to not just investigate terrorist attacks after they happened, but also try to prevent them from happening. But Congress didn't give the FBI more money, so it was hard to get the field offices to shift resources from all the other crimes they were working on for terrorism efforts. Skipping over a lot of detail, the point is that bringing the FBI to operate at maximum capability in terms of counterterrorism was dramatically difficult. They had all kinds of other legitimate priorities. There were constraints in terms of people and language, information systems, organizational structure and culture, and there were legitimate questions about the legal tools at the FBI's disposal. We've talked before on the podcast several times about FISA and the ability of U.S. law enforcement to use surveillance techniques in the United States. A lot of internal procedures were developed in the 90s, specifically under Attorney General Janet Reno, to prevent going back to the pre-Watergate era and maybe even more accurately to prevent a court from finding that the FBI had exceeded its power in a way that jeopardized its ability to get and use information and prosecutions. And something really important happened as a result of all of that, I believe, well-intended work. The Office of Intelligence Policy and Review became the sole gatekeeper for passing information to the FBI's criminal division. This was not required by any of the procedures that had been written, but the office stepped up and assumed that role anyway and said it was necessary to reflect the concerns of the FISA court. This brought the flow of information between the criminal side of the FBI and the intelligence side of the FBI to a halt. So we already have these field offices where we're a super dispersed organization, and everyone believes that headquarters exist just to support the field offices, not to coordinate their activities. So there's that one layer of a lack of communication. Now we have another layer with even... Even within the same squads in the FBI, agents started to incorrectly believe that the intelligence agents and the criminal agents could not talk to each other, even when FISA wasn't involved at all. And that lack of information sharing, again, all done from a place where I think people were trying to be careful to avoid the sins of the past, all with good intentions. We... Overcorrected. We overcorrected. That's right. And we prevented our agents from doing their work without even realizing that we were preventing it because it wasn't written down anywhere. It just took on a life of its own. And you can, I mean, I get it. I get that they were like, oh, well, we really need to say siloed because when you had this, when you had J. Edgar Hoover pulling the strings for everything, that's when you had this massive level of coordination that left to led to an abuse of power and they were pulling the strings everywhere to spy on Americans. And I mean, I get it. I do get it. I get it, too. And I get it on the CIA side as well, which is what we'll talk about next. The CIA also originated from the World War II era. 
First, President Roosevelt creates the Office of Strategic Services, and from the outset, it was filled with very well-to-do, well-traveled, scholarly people who did lots of research and wrote reports on economic, political, and social conditions throughout the world. Harry Truman dissolved that entity and created a different one, and then in 1947, he signed off on creating the CIA as it exists today under the National Security Act. At the time, the FBI lobbied for separating law enforcement and intelligence, and there were people in the United States who had concerns about the FBI becoming a version of the Gestapo. Again, think about the time period that we're in. So the CIA was given no law enforcement powers or internal security functions at all. You build in from its inception a purposeful tension between the CIA and the FBI. The CIA was also very decentralized. It had stations throughout the world, and like the FBI, the chiefs of those stations were really powerful. And like the FBI, the CIA took a big hit during the Watergate investigations. During those investigations, it came out that the CIA had planned to assassinate Fidel Castro in Cuba and other foreign leaders in the 1960s. So at the time, President Nixon did not have the CIA's back, and this information came out. So many CIA officers learned from this period to be very conservative in covert actions, making sure that the legal basis and the presidential authorization for their actions were crystal clear so that they didn't get thrown under the bus. The CIA was also totally engaged on the Cold War. They were obsessed with being infiltrated by Soviet KGB. Every system and tool was really premised on dealing with Cold War concerns. And so just like we talked about getting the FBI to shift in the counterterrorism direction, the CIA making the turn after the Cold War to other parts of the world was really hard. After the Cold War ended, Congress cut some of their funding. And you couldn't just reassign an agent to a new area of the world because they didn't have the appropriate expertise. It takes five to seven years of training and experience for a recruit to really be ready to perform in the CIA. It's not just that they, after the Cold War, they couldn't turn to other parts of the world. It's that we were so focused on preventing the spread of communism. During the Cold War, we couldn't see... The forest through the trees, right? We mm-hmm. talked about in the Middle East how often we were we were funding a group just because they were anti-communist. That's all it took. Okay, that means you're our friend. Well, hold, hold on, everybody. Should we look a, bit, a little bit deeper into the people we're giving weapons and funding to beyond just the fact that they're anti-communist? You know, it's like that's the only thing that mattered. There were lots of other reasons that the CIA was struggling to adapt to. The the world was changing. You know, the CIA had this super scholarly approach to things, which was totally at odds with the Internet and the 24-hour news cycle. And it added pressure to the CIA to be able to work faster. You know, the White House is getting news from news organizations faster than the CIA can keep up with briefing the White House. And getting people to work on counterterror is really difficult. At the time, there were very few colleges offering programs in Middle Eastern languages or Islamic studies. The 9-11 Commission report noted that in 2002, only six people in the entire United States graduated with degrees in Arabic. Dang. And then you have the added layer of qualifying people to work in the CIA, not just with their education, but if you were foreign born, there was the thought that you not even need to apply because you wouldn't be able to get cleared. 
If you had numerous relatives abroad, if you traveled frequently, um, it could take forever to vet people or or you just could ultimately not get people with the language abilities and the cultural understanding cleared to work in the organization. So it was a huge challenge. And in 2004, when George Tenet testified before the 9-11 Commission, in 2004, so three years after 9-11, he said that the CIA was still at least five years away from being fully ready to play its counterterrorism role. I mentioned that not to beat up on the CIA. You can understand why. You can understand why it was hard to change your mindset completely from thinking about the Soviet Union and, as Sarah said, the spread of communism to the complexity of the Middle East when you don't have a workforce ready to talk about the complexity of the Middle East. Well, and here's the other thing. It's not just that it was challenging. It was not a priority. Like Carrie, our beloved Middle East expert on pansy politics, was talking about when she came back from the Middle East, like she couldn't find a job because nobody was funding those roles. Nobody in the think tanks wanted to. It was just like the answer was sort of like, eh, nobody cares. It's going to be really hard for you to find a job. It's like it takes something terrible happening for all of us to decide this is worth our attention. and. At the time, because nothing truly terrible had happened, although people had lost their lives and everybody knew these these organizations were growing, like everyone was still focused on other priorities and there was not this, uh, maybe we should pay attention to other things. It's worth mentioning that these issues we're talking about were true across the government. The Immigration and Naturalization Service needed a bigger role in counterterrorism, if you think about who's coming into the country. But in 1993, the new head of the INS was trying to deal with the fact that they were still using manual typewriters at ports of entry and paper watch lists. And there were insufficient staffing levels to deal with the rising levels of immigration. So the INS tries to work with the FBI and CIA and other departments to propose some solutions, but there were just too many challenges at one time. And Congress did not give the INS any more money to meet these challenges. This is just true across the government. And I really appreciate how the 9-11 Commission report continues to point to the fact that Congress did not give these agencies an environment in which they could be successful. Well, and we were all just focused on other things. The Congress didn't give them the money because the constituents weren't saying it was a priority. That we were all too worried about Y2K and Monica Lewinsky and, you know, the growing technology and the economy and all these in the, you know, that's that's they were focused. I mean, listen, they represent us. And if we're not if we don't care, it's just such a hard thing, because how are we supposed to know? You know, how's the average American supposed to know? that we should be paying attention to the Middle East. It's like this weird tension between the bureau the bureaucracy understands, but they don't they don't they can't get the funding and the access from Congress because Congress is only is only caring about what the constituents are talking about. Do you know what I mean? I mean in theory, that's why you have some level of representation that is not just based on majority opinion, but is also based on a real trusty relationship in which Congress understands we have to pay attention to things that maybe our constituents don't think are important. In theory. In theory. And the foreign policy challenges that were known to Congress and they were focusing on were very complicated at the time. Mm. Hezbollah was very active. You have the situation in Bosnia. You had problems in Haiti, Somalia, which we talked about on uh, Patreon, Kosovo. You know, it's not like people were twiddling their thumbs. You can understand why the focus wasn't there. But there were also voices telling everyone, you need to care about this, and they weren't being listened to. 
Well, and one of the favorite things I read about this, and I think this is true too. So you have all these problems across the world. And I heard one of the CIA analysts describe this in an article we'll link in the show notes. She said, it's a first through the door problem. The first people that notice something are going to be in the minority and people are going to poo-poo them until they get everybody on board. And so it's not like people didn't know, but because they were first, because they were seen as a minority, I think there's a lot, a huge aspect of sexism because the the CIA analyst that were focusing on this region of the world were almost primarily women. And I think that's some of it. And so it was these prejudicial ideas about women that were being, and it was this first through the door problem in combination with prejudiced ideas about Arabs. I think, I think that's all that, like there was this, I read a lot of reporting that basically the CIA and the FBI, there was this idea of like, well, Arabs can't work together. They won't be able to organize on this level. What? <laughs> no. Uh-uh. Well, an inadequate expertise on our side and where we had the expertise, it was so limited. You know, Ali Soufan, we were talking before we started recording, Ali Soufan was the agent assigned to investigate the USS Cole bombing. He was very, very young to be given the level of responsibility that he had. And um, the person that he worked under described him as a national treasure because he really understood. He, his language was great. His cultural understanding was huge. He, he was a Muslim. Um, and, and he was just a really tenacious, good investigator. But he's one guy. You know, trying to get this massive bureaucracy to understand the threat being posed. And he's dealing with Yemen, which is not excited to have the FBI in its country. There's this incredible story depicted in the Looming Tower, but told even more effectively in a magazine article that we'll link in the show notes as well, about how when, when the FBI gets to Yemen to investigate the coal bombing, they are greeted by an army pointing machine guns at them. Mm. And Ali Soufan understands the culture enough to get out water bottles and start offering water to the Yemenese soldiers as a gift. And that water was so precious to them. Some of them wouldn't even drink it because they were so amazed to have water from the United States. And that is how he started forging a relationship. He told um, the Yemenese authorities that John O'Neill, his boss, who was in charge of counterterrorism at the FBI at the time, was a general so that he could establish a hierarchy that worked in America's favor in having conversations with Yemen just to Mm -hmm. let us come investigate the death of American military personnel um, off the coast of Yemen. So what everybody was doing was just, it was hard. It was really hard. And it was uncharted territory in so many ways. USS Cole attack really increased Al-Qaeda's recruiting efforts. And so you see this sort of increase in recruiting, increase in organization. And after this point, I think the CIA realizes we need somebody inside Al-Qaeda. We need an inside source. And so I think partly because of the relationship with Saudi Arabia, that they the CIA felt like it was their job to protect the interests of the United States by protecting the interests of Saudi Arabia, and because they were looking to infiltrate al-Qaeda. And there's this idea that the FBI just comes in sort of like beefy, you know, loud, and blow up the relationship and go after underlings, and then they can't do the the real intelligence gathering that the CIA wants to do. They were keeping this increased organization, including the presence of al-Qaeda operatives in the United States, 
to themselves. And Beth and I both watched an interview with Richard Clark that went into this in detail, and it, we'll put it in the show notes. It's, it's very intense to listen to. And it's hotly contested. The reasons for the CIA not sharing specifically the presence of al-Qaeda operatives in the United States who ended up being part of the 9-11 attacks. They knew there were these two guys that had come to the United States well in advance of 9-11 who ended up being hijackers. The reasons that the CIA did not alert the FBI to that, whether the CIA did or not, when and how, there is a lot of debate about it. But I buy Richard Clark's explanation just personally that they wanted them for they wanted to infiltrate Al Qaeda and they decided that was the top priority. And by the time they realized, oh, it was too late. And the chair of the 9-11 Commission has strongly said that he's seen no evidence of that. Um, It's just it's hard to know. It's hard to know because what we ask of people who serve in the CIA is so intense What we ask of people who serve in the FBI is so intense. What we Mm -hmm. do and don't uh, support them on after they've done hard things for us is a big deal. We could spend hours going through the minutia of how how the CIA came to know that these guys were in the United States and everybody's different theories about why no one ever told the FBI that and why it never made it to the intelligence briefings that the White House was getting. What I think is more productive is to have this larger cultural conversation that we're trying to have, which is our institutions were unprepared to adapt to a changing world. Our concerns about the scope and power of those institutions were well-founded and also damaging to us. And I don't see a lot of difference between 2001 and 2018 in those respects. And also, I think the tension built into the structure is also, you know, that that we have to keep the the siloing and the within the organizations themselves and between the FBI and the CIA. While I understand it, I get it. I think that we have to understand the tension that has benefits has risks. And we saw that with 9-11, the different sort of missions, the different organizations, the different ways in which they work means that. There, there. That tension is sometimes going to lead to what happened at 9/11, which is they did not share information that could have perhaps prevented the attack. I mean, I mean, I, I don't think there's, I don't think that's being unfair to either organization to say that. I mean, I think that we know enough from the 9/11 Commission and we know enough from the facts on the ground, like you said, that these men were here, they participated in the attack, we knew they were here. I don't think that that. I think we have to understand that tension that can sometimes have benefits to organizations, has risk as, as well. Well, and, you know, you you look back at every point and think, what could have changed this? There is a hindsight perspective that the Clinton administration did not retaliate to the coal attack militarily because they didn't want to be seen as trying to distract everyone from Monica Lewinsky and Whitewater. Mm-hmm. I think a fairer reading, I'm not saying that's wholly unfair, but I think a fairer reading is that They didn't have direct evidence that it was al-Qaeda. They suspected it, but they didn't have direct evidence for quite some time. They didn't have evidence at all of bin Laden's personal involvement in the attacks until into 2002-2003 after 9-11 had happened and it wasn't the Clinton administration anymore. And with all of these terror attacks, you get in this loop of if the American military responds, 
you you make their lives even easier in terms of getting new recruits, right? You're fulfilling what they say about us in the first place. It's really challenging to know. I think you can Monday morning quarterback all of this so easily without having any understanding of whether and how it would have changed the outcomes. I think there's a place for Monday morning quarterbacking. I think with an event like this, we all have to think, we all have to work through in real ways what happened and that mistakes were made. If for no other reason than I think really looking hard at the decisions that were made by our government gives a framework for people to something that feels so unreasonable and senseless. And what I mean by that is, I mean, psychologically, conspiracy theories bubble up because people can't make sense of events, right? So they have to make sense of events. And they use a conspiracy theory to add a framework around a tragedy that makes sense to them. And so, I mean, I think the the Monday morning quarterbacking to a sense or the, you know, the commission reports and talking through like this was made. And no, we we have no way of proving that had some different decisions been made a different outcome. But we can point to, like I said, tensions and risk and mistakes that were made so that we do understand that this didn't this wasn't just, you know, something that that was wholly unforeseeable, that was, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like it grounds it in the world we live in as opposed to leaving it in a place susceptible to conspiracy theories. And I think really questioning our government, while it's hard on these institutions that are already in a tough place post-Watergate in our current environment, I still think it's a valuable conversation to have, to be hard on the FBI and to be hard on the CIA and to be hard on our government in a desi- in a in an effort to better understand what happened and to prevent it from happening again and to give people an explanation. And I think people needed that. And I don't think that they got it in a real and emotionally fulfilling way. And that's why we see such proliferation of conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11. My point is just that there isn't one explanation. Right. And that's why people like conspiracy theories, because then you can go, that's it. That's the one. (laughs) And there is nothing emotionally satisfying about any of the very legitimate explanations Mm -hmm. that are part of this. And I think one of the major lessons to take from it today is that some of these problems, as you said so well and succinctly, came from overcorrection. And then what happens next, which we will talk about in our next um, episode on this, is that we overcorrect it again. Mm. Because that's how we know how to process information. My therapist talks a lot about the spell of solidity, that you think everything is fixed around you and that the, the painful process of becoming an adult is often realizing that everything around you is not solid. You know, that that your parents got divorced, that someone died, that people at your school weren't always acting with your best interest at heart. Whatever it is, the, the painful process of growing into a mature, wise person is starting to understand that everything around you can be disrupted and will be. And when I was looking at this research on the FBI and the CIA, I kept coming back to the spell of solidity because I think that growing up in the time that I did, I just saw all this as fixed. 
You know what I mean? I thought this is what the FBI is. This is what the CIA is. It didn't occur to me that a very short time before I was born and during my formative years as a child, these organizations were being asked to massively change in purpose and in technique and the tools that were at their disposal were changing, that our whole government has been upended by technology, by globalization, by terrorism. And it's just kind of helping me see that we can't sit today and think, well, here's what these organizations are, because things continue to change. And we're just we're part of that change. And we need a much more engaged Congress to help these branches of our government have the tools that they need to be able to meet new challenges. And instead, we're like we're just entrenched in the silliest fights all the time. You know, congressional committee work being a circus is part of what led to 9-11 and is is still happening. You know, I feel like we're not learning the lessons from this period. For me, the takeaway is we really want to believe that had the right person been there making the right decisions, this wouldn't have happened. And so what we really need is the right person leading the FBI or the right president or the right Congress. But the reality is that no matter what person is there, they will still be a human being. And it's like what we try to do is find a person that will make less mistakes or things we define as mistakes, as opposed to saying, we're all going to make mistakes. How do we mitigate the damages because these organizations are filled with human beings who make mistakes. So how do we put in in place, how do we think through processes and procedures that mitigate the mistakes every person, no matter what side of the aisle they, on, they are on, no matter what they're training on, is going to make? How do we do that? How do we look through and we say, People make mistakes. They're always going to make mistakes. They're going to be willfully ignorant to things that make them uncomfortable. They're going to be prejudiced. They're going. They're, you're going to have groupthink. So how do we mitigate that? How do we now, knowing what we know about human behavior in a much deeper and more complex way, I keep thinking about um, The March of Folly, the historical book that goes through the Vietnam War and the Revolution and um, sort of the medieval popes. And she just says, we do the same things over and over again. So knowing that now, I feel like in, in instead of just following the march of history and saying, yeah, but the next person will be better. OK, maybe but maybe they won't. Maybe they will be just as susceptible and they absolutely not. Maybe they will be just as susceptible to confirmation bias and to groupthink and to all these things. So so now knowing that, how can we mitigate the damages, not prevent them, but mitigate them? How can we put procedures in place to Help us not fall prey to hierarchy that willfully ignores things or, you know, the march of the 24-hour news cycle or funding and and that never going to be a sexy thing that people want to vote for. You know, I don't I think that's what we need to be thinking about is not just, well, let's just get better people who learn from the mistakes. No, let's just get I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but like, let's just think through the 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 fact that most of us are driven primarily by our monkey brain, and how can we mitigate the impact of that? I think the person who most effectively asked and tried to answer that question post 9-11 was Robert Mueller, Mm. who had been the director of the FBI for one week when September 11th occurred. 
And we can talk more about his efforts to reorganize the FBI next time. But I think he is the person who asked that question about the Bureau and made the most substantive uh, made the most substantive attempt to answer it. So that is what we will tackle in the next segment of our 9-11 series. Before that, we're very excited about talking to congressional candidate Amy McGrath in our home state of Kentucky. But before we move on to that next week, we're going to move on in this show to what's on our mind outside politics. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? I just spent several days in Fargo, North Dakota with Chad. Mm. I loved Fargo. I really enjoyed it. It's definitely going on my list of places that I could live. (laughs) We also did a lot of just television watching because we were traveling. So we, um, you know, watched the iPad together on planes and in the car. And one of the things that we watched, and I know you've been dying to talk about this for a while, was Hannah Godsby's Nanette. Oh, so good. I had no idea what to expect. I had just been hearing it's phenomenal. You have to watch it. And if you haven't seen it, it is a comedy special, but not really. Yeah. In theory. It's on comedy. It's about comedy. So that makes it a comedy special. And there are moments that are very, very funny. Yeah, very funny. She is incredibly talented. What ends up happening is that she tells her life story through the lens of critically examining her career as a comedian in a way that is such a gift, I think, Mm -hmm. to the audience and the world. It just made me realize, I feel like everywhere I turn right now, people are talking about the importance of storytelling. And I'm always like, yeah, I agree with that. I don't think I've ever seen storytelling done the way that she does it Mm -hmm. in this special And I think this is the first time that I have thought, oh, this is what changes the world. And I don't Mm. mean to be dramatic about that. And as you know, dramatic is not really my style. But I just watched her and realized that we almost never, even in our personal relationships, we almost never hear anyone so strip away every worry about what the person listening to the story might be feeling or every worry about what the story says about the storyteller and every filter on what's happening in this interaction, the way she strips it away here. And it's, it is something to behold. I think there's something holy about what she did. Absolutely. I think the brilliance of what she did is to, you know, she exquisitely talks about tension in comedy. See, I'm going to make you tense and then I'm going to give you the the punchline and that's going to relieve the tension and the laughter. That That is a really wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling to feel tension and feel and then get the laughter to relieve the tension. We all feel like we're on the same team. We all feel like we've had this moment together. I think it is a biologically fulfilling thing because you're connecting with other humans in this very... Um, primal way over laughter, right? And she talks so much about, see see how what I'm doing here. And she shows you how she's building the jokes and the tension. And then in a very talented and unapologetic way, it reminds me a lot of Tig Notaro when she was, I mean, very, very, very sick. She did a, a skit that everybody talked about. I don't think it was filmed. I think she got close to sort of following up and, and some of her success with what she was doing there. And, and she's a brilliant comedian. But she just came out on stage and was like, I'm dying. I don't have any jokes, man. <laughs> like, I'm really sick. Everything's going wrong. I mean, you have to be a very, very talented comedian to do that Thing, to do what Tig did. And that's why everybody was like, oh my God, what I just witnessed when she did it. And to do what Hannah did, which is to build, to leave it there, to say, I built this tension and you are going to sit with it now because I have led you to this space and you're going to be uncomfortable, which is something every fiber of our society, every lesson of capitalism says, you don't do that. You don't make people uncomfortable. That's not how you make money. 
That's not a business model. That's not a model for laughs. That's not a model for growth. That's not a model for profit. People don't like to be uncomfortable. Got to make people comfortable. And it also reminds me of, I think the other place I've seen this, I think that's a little bit what, particularly what felt revolutionary about Pixar in the beginning. I think Pixar in a lot of their films says, we're not going to tie this up for you. This is uncomfortable because the lessons of childhood and and adulthood and growing and life are uncomfortable sometimes. And so we're going to leave you with some tension with that. And so, and it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do, but so needed, so important in our, in our lives right now, in our society right now. I've been thinking a lot about something you sent my way, which was a conversation we both heard. Now stay with us, everybody. Don't freak out. It was on the Goop podcast. Okay. And just like disclaimer, Goop gets a lot of things wrong. (laughs) Like so, so, so many things wrong. So many things wrong. But um, they had Marion Williamson on the Goop podcast, and she, in this conversation, got so, so many things right. <laughs> so, so many things right. And I think sort of it reminds me of, you know, it's what you were talking about in the net, which is, nope, mm-mm. I'm going to leave you with this tension. She, Marion Williamson, who's built this entire career on spiritual growth and individual growth, was basically like, we're done with that. This is not about coddling ourselves or you know, our own spiritual growth and development. Like, it was so funny. One of the interviewers like, I know the news is so exhausting. And she's like, nope, we're not doing that. We're not going to do that right now. We don't have time to be exhausted. Don't you think the people in the front lines of Selma were exhausted and traumatized? Were they boohooing and needing coaching to be more resilient? Nope. But, you know, suck it up, buttercups. Time to be an adult. We neglected our community. We neglected our democracy. We've neglected things because we all wanted to be comfortable and we didn't want to live with the tension. And I love so much that I'm hearing so many voices, not by accident, female voices, I would say, saying, hey, everybody, I'm not going to shine this on for you anymore. Not going to clean it up. We've made a mess here. We all have to live with it and deal with how to clean it up together. Love me. (laughs) The Marianne Williamson conversation on Goop was so comforting for me in a lot of ways. And and I don't mean comforting like it made me comfortable. I mean, it gave me language to process some things that that I couldn't process Mm -hmm. otherwise. Our listener, Sarah, sent that episode to me. So shout out to Sarah. Thank you for sending it my way. One of the things it made me think about a lot, and Nanette made me think about this a little bit too, because there was a theme in both of those of like, stop wasting time with being precious and feelings hurt and, you know, being fragile about things. And I have struggled, as everybody knows, with this tension of we're we're a bipartisan podcast. We start with Sarah from the left, Beth, Beth from the right. I worry about that. I worry when I get criticism that we're promising something that we don't deliver. Um, and then I have these moments when I'm like, who cares about any of that? Like, I don't care about any of that. What Marianne Williamson said that really helped me process that whole situation around us. And I guess I feel um, at liberty to be kind of meta about this because that is a lot of what's going on in Nanette. But she said, you know, we were we had a time before Charlottesville particularly, but before the entire Trump administration, when we believed that there were levees holding Mm. back the fringes. When we believed that there were lines, especially about race, that just wouldn't be crossed anymore. It was not acceptable to cross those lines. And it's not that we thought racism didn't exist. It's that, like we talked about at the top of this show, Sarah, that there was like a threshold 
that it was mm-hmm. minimized and mm-hmm. that that regular people felt comfortable that there were these levies holding all of that back. And what a lot of us, there, that there's a ton of privilege in that, right? And what a lot of us have had to confront in the last two years is that was not everybody's experience. But many of us accepted that as the experience. And now we are being shown those levies do not, in fact, exist. They are not there. There is nothing holding this back. And it is not going to be minimized. And we are going to actually have to work our way through this stuff. I think we conceptualized this podcast to the extent we even did. I mean, we were mostly like sitting down having a conversation with each other because it was fun. To the extent that we conceptualized this whole thing as bipartisan, it was through a lens of politics with those levies in place. It was to have a different conversation Mm -hmm. than the conversations that we're having to have today because we are so aware now that that the levies aren't holding. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think what I loved about what she had to say is the levies aren't holding because people of privilege were the levies. And we decided from our place of comfortableness and privilege that somebody else was minding the gates. We all got focused on our individual needs and our individual development and our spiritual growth. Those are all important things. I'm not poo-pooing those things. But, you know, we live together. We're not all islands. We've chosen to live as cities and counties and states and the United States of America as a government. And that holds responsibilities. And I think, you know, so much of what Hannah says and Nanette is there's a responsibility as a person who stands up and as a voice in comedy. Like we all have a duty to each other. It's not just about ourselves. And we all have a responsibility to each other. And I think, you know, so many of us, the irony is that the spiritual growth for me that was sort of individualized, I think what happened and why I came back to to my faith is because the faith put for me weight onto the duty I owe my fellow humans. You know, Marianne Williamson says in the podcast that secular society doesn't have a great response to evil because it won't recognize the presence of evil. Like there's no place, there's no place and tools in, in effect to, to battle that really. Because that's us. We are the levies. We are the front lines. As members of a community together, we hold responsibility to each other to step up when it's uncomfortable, to say things that are hard, to do things that are hard, to hold, to, to let the tension sit, to not laugh or make everyone comfortable or say, oh, I didn't mean it or move on to the next joke or move on to the next comp- topic of conversation that makes everyone comfortable. That's a sacred duty. And, you know, I think so many of us, and I include myself, neglected that. Because it was more comfortable. It was more comfortable to, you know, pay attention to our own lives and our in our own sort of individual homes and forget that we're in this together. It's not all that different from the overcorrection phenomenon that we were just talking about. Mm. Because I think that in connection with actualization, which is basically what happened, right? We like ascended Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. because of the success of capitalism and other things, to the point where now we can think about all kinds of philosophical matters that are luxurious in many ways. And because of our physical comfort, we're allowed to do that very individualistically. 
And we decide in that process, and hooray for us for making this decision, that some of us just aren't going to take what's been thrown our way anymore, right? And so you have a very different perspective on what marriage should mean for women. Mm -hmm. You have very different perspectives on diversity and inclusion in our businesses and our educational institutions. And all that is right and good and important. And it means that some of the privileged people start to get a little bit pissed off because maybe all this has gone a little too far. Mm-hmm. And it's it's eating into my fortune and my comfort level. And it also means that our expectations start to change in ways that aren't grounded anymore. I was listening to Krista Tippett talk with um, Alain de Baton about marriage and a wonderful conversation on on being. And something that Alain said in that conversation that I am going to be thinking about for such a long time is that compatibility is the outgrowth of love, not its precursor. Mm. That is so counterculture in America, right? Among people like you and me who might listen to a Goop podcast now and then. (laughs) We think, I'm out here looking for the perfect person, right? And there is... There is something, too, that's a better place to be than I'm forced to marry this person and become free labor to care for his household while he goes out and actualizes himself, right? I mean, you you see why all of this happens. But now all of us are in a place where I think the world has started to look more like a smorgasbord from which we are making choices that need to delight us than something that we need to be contributing to all the time as well. My friend and I were having this conversation. She said she heard the best thing, which is like, yeah, you fall in love. It's like an accident. And then the work starts. You know, like the falling yes. in love is sort of an accident. That's why you fall. Falling is an accident. And then is the walking, the getting back and the walking and the taking a step every day. That's a choice and that's work. And that is why I think your point about returning to faith is such an important one. For me, returning to my faith has been so much less about the Bible, right? Then remembering that really my first job as a human being here is to fall in love with everybody and everything around me. Mm-hmm. That's my first job is to just love all of this because I am part of it and it is part of me. And that's my obligation to be in love with my dog, to be in love with the trees and the sky and you and our audience and people who write nasty reviews about us. I am supposed to <laughs> love all of that. Because it is all the same thing, right? And I, I felt listening to Hannah Gadsby that, like, for the first time, somebody was saying clearly and in a way that I could hear, you are supposed to love me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you are, and I trust you to love me enough to listen to this story. Yeah, what she was doing was an act of love. Absolutely. I, I trust you with my hard stuff and with my pain mm-hmm. and with my anger. I trust you to listen to me reflect on whether my anger is helpful or not. Mm-hmm. I trust you with all of this. And it made me understand that a lot of my life spent practicing the skill of making other people comfortable has come at an enormous cost. And a big part of that cost is me not contributing what I should be contributing. Mm, that's intense. <laughs> Uh, So that wasn't exactly outside of politics, as it turns out. (laughs) 
Oh, but it's important. So we're just going to leave you with attention, just like Hannah Gatsby. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Fancy Politics, characteristically wide ranging. (laughs) And we will be back with you on The Nuanced Life this week. We're going to have a conversation about fear on The Nuanced Life. So if you are liking the tension, come on over and chat with us there. We'll be back here on Friday. (laughs) Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.